Chapter Eight of Maggie, A Girl of the Streets. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Maggie, A Girl of the Streets by Stephen Crane. Chapter Eight. As thoughts of Pete came to Maggie's mind, she began to have an intense dislike for all of her dresses. What the hell ails you? What makes you be always fixin' and fussin'? Good God! Her mother would frequently roar at her. She began to note with more interest the well-dressed women she met on the avenues. She envied elegance and soft palms. She craved those adornments of person which she saw every day on the street, conceiving them to be allies of vast importance to women. Studying faces, she thought many of the women and girls she chanced to meet smiled with serenity, as though forever cherished and watched over by those they loved. The air in the collar and cuff establishment strangled her. She knew she was gradually and surely shriveling in the hot, stuffy room. The begrimed windows rattled incessantly from the passing of elevated trains. The place was filled with a whirl of noises and odors. She wondered as she regarded some of the grizzled women in the room—mere mechanical contrivances, sewing seams and grinding out, with heads bended over their work, tales of imagined or real girlhood happiness, past drunks, the baby at home, and unpaid wages. She speculated how long her youth would endure. She began to see the bloom upon her cheeks as valuable. She imagined herself in an exasperating future, as a scrawny woman with an eternal grievance. Too, she thought Pete to be a very fastidious person concerning the appearance of women. She felt she would love to see somebody entangle their fingers in the oily beard of the fat foreigner who owned the establishment. He was a detestable creature. He wore white socks with low shoes. He sat all day delivering orations in the depths of a cushioned chair. His pocketbook deprived them of the power of retort. What in hell do you think I pay five dollars a week for? Play? No, but dumb. Maggie was anxious for a friend to whom she could talk about Pete. She would have liked to discuss his admirable mannerisms with a reliable mutual friend. At home, she found her mother often drunk and always raving. It seems that the world had treated this woman very badly, and she took a deep revenge upon such portions of it as came within her reach. She broke furniture as if she were at last getting her rights. She swelled with virtuous indignation as she carried the lighter articles of household use one by one under the shadows of the three gilt balls, where Hebrews chained them with chains of interest. Jimmy came when he was obliged to by circumstances over which he had no control. His well-trained legs brought him staggering home and put him to bed some nights when he would rather have gone elsewhere. Swaggering Pete loomed like a golden sun to Maggie. He took her to a dime museum where rows of meek freaks astonished her. She contemplated their deformities with awe, 
and thought them a sort of chosen tribe. Pete, raking his brains for amusement, discovered the Central Park Menagerie and the Museum of Arts. Sunday afternoons would sometimes find them at these places. Pete did not appear to be particularly interested in what he saw. He stood around looking heavy while Maggie giggled in glee. Once at the menagerie, he went into a trance of admiration before the spectacle of a very small monkey threatening to thrash a cageful because one of them had pulled his tail and he had not wheeled about quickly enough to discover who did it. Ever after, Pete knew that monkey by sight and winked at him, trying to induce him to fight with other and larger monkeys. At the museum, Maggie said, This is out of sight. Oh, hell, said Pete. Wait till next summer and I'll take us to a picnic. While the girl wandered in the vaulted rooms, Pete occupied himself in returning stony stare for stony stare, the appalling scrutiny of the watchdogs of the treasures. Occasionally, he would remark in loud tones, Did Jay's got glass eyes? and sentences of the sort. When he tired of this amusement, he would go to the mummies and moralize over them. Usually, he submitted with silent dignity to all which he had to go through, but at times he was goaded into comment. What the hell? he demanded once. Look at all these little jugs. Hundred jugs in a row, ten rows in a case, and about a thousand cases. What the blazes use is then? Evenings during the week he took her to see plays in which the brain-clutching heroine was rescued from the palatial home of her guardian, who was cruelly after her bonds, by the hero with the beautiful sentiments. The latter spent most of his time out at soak in pale green snowstorms, busy with a nickel-plated revolver, rescuing aged strangers from villains. Maggie lost herself in sympathy with the wanderers swooning in snowstorms beneath happy-hued church windows, and a choir within singing, Joy to the World. To Maggie and the rest of the audience, this was transcendental realism. Joy always within, and they, like the actor, inevitably without. Viewing it, they hugged themselves in ecstatic pity of their imagined or real condition. The girl thought the arrogance and granite-heartedness of the magnate of the play was very accurately drawn. She echoed the maledictions that the occupants of the gallery showered on this individual when his lines compelled him to expose his extreme selfishness. Shady persons in the audience revolted from the pictured villainy of the drama. With untiring zeal, they hissed vice and applauded virtue. Unmistakably, bad men evinced an apparently sincere admiration for virtue. The loud gallery was overwhelmingly with the unfortunate and the oppressed. They encouraged the struggling hero with cries and jeered the villain, hooting and calling attention to his whiskers. When anybody died in the pale green snowstorms, the gallery mourned. They sought out the painted misery and hugged it as akin. In the hero's erratic march from poverty in the first act to wealth and triumph in the final one, in which he forgives all the enemies that he has left, 
he was assisted by the gallery, which applauded his generous and noble sentiments and confounded the speeches of his opponents by making irrelevant but very sharp remarks. Those actors who were cursed with villainy parts were confronted at every turn by the gallery. If one of them rendered lines containing the most subtle distinctions between right and wrong, the gallery was immediately aware if the actor meant wickedness, and denounced him accordingly. The last act was a triumph for the hero, poor and of the masses, the representative of the audience, over the villain and the rich man, his pockets stuffed with bonds and his heart packed with tyrannical purposes, imperturbable amid suffering. Maggie always departed with raised spirits from the showing places of the melodrama. She rejoiced at the way in which the poor and virtuous eventually surmounted the wealthy and wicked. The theater made her think. She wondered if the culture and refinement she had seen imitated, perhaps grotesquely, by the heroine on the stage, could be acquired by a girl who lived in a tenement house and worked in a shirt factory. End of chapter 8